Welcome to Sports Lit. I'm Neil Acharya. And I am Nate Sager. If it were a normal year, the Raptors would be tipping off right now to celebrate their 25th season. Instead, they're not too far removed from a second-round playoff bubble exit at the hands of the Boston Celtics, a tournament they entered as the defending champions. How improbable that is to hear is a good reason why you may want to read Doug Smith's book, We the North which celebrates and chronicles the roller coaster ride that is that has been this franchise's story since they tipped off against the New Jersey Nets on Friday, November 3, 1995. Smith has been a day one reporter and so he has seen it all literally. And what he really saw is the city coming of age in many ways. It added another major sport and a franchise that needed you and showed it and thus reflected it. And that was never more evident than when the turnout we saw on June 17, 2019 for the championship parade. So for more on We the North with Doug Smith, I turn it over to my colleague, Nate Sager. Yeah, that was a nice birthday present. They all came to celebrate Neil's birthday, everyone. <laughs> all, was it one, two million? Yeah, one million? He, yeah Neil dropped uh, 41 that day, just like Chris Bosch dropped 41 <laughs> the first time we went to a Raptors game together in go. 2007. Uh, Neil, a, a transcendent team, I think it gives you something that fits with the story you tell about yourself. Uh, the Toronto Raptors are riveting to their thousands of Canadian fans for that reason, since this team was you know, built by and with people who all had to overcome something. Uh, those stories have been told very well by our guest Doug Smith today and you know, other basketball writers, often by the players themselves. You know, everyone's, you, you should be able to see something of yourself maybe a little bit in every guy like find that one guy on the floor you know my raptor serge Ibaka. you know he comes off the bench he br- brings a lot of elbow grease you know he gets those 50 50 rebounds he's not a scorer but when he hits baskets it always seems to be in games when they really need it you know when the team's fraying a little uh this is going to be a bit of a tldr portion <laughs> of the show i have uh some real give me five b's for a quarter energy when it comes to the raptors their early days and uh my bond with basketball now a grown-ass man should not tether his <laughs> self-worth to the fortunes of his favorite teams. You know, like the BoJack Horseman principle. You are responsible for your own happiness. I know that. Please don't remind me of it. Uh, you know, Doug Smith was on the Pound the Rock podcast last week and told uh, Joseph Cascario that, you know, we the North, uh, you know, he decided it needed to show what was hap- from the beginning, what was happening in the 90s that made it possible for the Toronto Raptors to win the ch- NBA championship in 2019. And I can tell you as a fan, there's just days I'll randomly wake up and I'll be like, that ha- that happened? The Raptors won the, like, the, Raptors won the championship. Uh, you know, capturing the spirit of the thing uh, means segueing into where I was in the 95-96 basketball season when the Raptors were an expansion team, you know, playing in the Sky Dome and Doug was trying to work on his deadline stories while they were dismantling the basketball court around him. Uh, Neil, you touched on this. I think we saw, we sensed how the sportscape was shifting in Canada when we were teenagers growing up in and around Kingston, Ontario. Uh, calls to mind the windows trick that they used to use on the office for uh, the talking heads when someone speaks to the camera. You know, the characters who did not have any future outside Dunder Mifflin. They used to put them in front of interior windows. It was like the demotivational plaque in Homer Simpson's workspace. Don't forget, you're here forever. And then they put the characters who had a future outside Dunder Mifflin in front of exterior windows. You know, for our purposes in 1995, hockey was the window into Canadian sports pass, which is valuable. 
But the arrival of the Raptors was a window into the coming 21st century. There was this multicultural major city. You know, one of the, you know, Toronto's one of the biggest cities in the world, in North America. In, it's a global city. You know, and it was primed to rally around Raptors basketball if they ever started to win. And Doug Smith was right in on the ground floor. Uh, and there was, you know, there was uncertainty and I guess a, a fragility at the time, you know uncertainty with ownership you know the arena you know canada had a about a 65 cent dollar at the time uh but before we get to that basketball is unique among the team sports because i think it's one where you know a loner or an outsider or an introvert can kind of find acceptance kind of like the kind of like the music world you know you can play full court you can play half court with you know two on two or, or you can just get some shots up on your own some I'm reminded, you know, one of my favorite sports writers is uh, Steve Russian, who, you know, wrote for Sports Illustrated in the 90s. Uh, he, you know, has his two memoirs about his childhood in Minnesota, uh, Stingray Afternoons and Nights in White Castle. Uh, you know, Russian had a similar upbringing to our recent guest, Brian Burke, you know, grew up in a large Catholic family in Minnesota that, you know, put an emphasis on sports and getting an education, you know, and Minnesota's the state of hockey. Uh, Russian's eldest brother, he played college hockey under Lou Lamorello at Providence College, just like Brian Burke did. Uh, and Russian's youngest brother played hockey for the University of Notre Dame. And But, you know, Russian just, you know, Steve Russian, you know, introvert, you know, felt more himself, felt more comfortable with that round ball in his hands instead of a, you know, curved Sherwood. Plus, uh, gyms are warmer than a hockey rink. Uh, so he became, you know, the gym rat who, you know, loved R&B and funk. I relate to that. Uh, you know, back in the 90s, you know, among my friends in my rural southeastern Ontario high school, you know, we were as passionate about basketball as hockey. You know, it was 50-50. You know, we started to shift from, you know, getting together to skate on the pond to shoot hoops. And and the music uh, you hear people coming out of people's headphones was you know, shifting from, you know, hair metal to hip hop. You know, we're the, you know, the last dance generation. Uh, you know, basket, the basketball world and the music world coming together isn't necessarily new. I think it was just, it was, you know, corporate America, corporate Canada playing catch up. You know, a brief uh, digression, you know, to the New York Wrens almost a century ago. They were a black owned team in the 1920s and 30s. And they used to play games in, a, in courts set up in a ballroom. And then after the game, there would be a dance. The Wrens actually won the first professional basketball championship in 1939, but. Sadly, they disbanded because they weren't accepted as a franchise into the early NBA. But the team is inducted en masse into the Basketball Hall of Fame. So, in Bath, you know, we'd get a winter thaw. My buddy Jay Weggs McKegney, the sixth man for the Ernestown Eagles, the guy who was like our three-point shooting specialist, he'd call some people, they'd call some people, you know, to get together and play. Like in January in like long pants and coats. You know, Wiggs would grab snow shovels and a push broom from his parents' house so we could, you know, clear the court behind St. Linus School of, like, snow, slush, gravel, and get her hoop on. So that passion for basketball was there across Canada, maybe, you know, below the radar. Of course, you know, when Vince Carter arrived with the Raptors in 1999, that changed the scope. He is the most globally popular athlete who ever played on a Canadian team. I think, you know, but before that, movers and shakers in Toronto, in Vancouver, saw that their kids loved the NBA and they wanted to sell them on supporting their own team. I think that needs to be there, you know, complementing, you know, the Carter effect narrative that we've, you know, had, you know, just save some space for the idea that something was trickling up from Generation X. 
And in We the North, Doug Smith says, hey, there was skepticism about whether the NBA was going to work in Canada. And you kind of think, wow, really? But, you know, look at the state of uh, pro sports in Canada at the time. You know, two NHL teams pulled up stakes to move to the U.S. Uh, the Montreal Expos had basically become a zombie franchise, you know, well before the 1994-95 uh, Major League Baseball strike. The Toronto Blue Jays were under, you know, absentee foreign ownership. The CFL had its, you know, ill-fated U.S. expansion experiment. And, of course, the other team that came in with the Raptors, the Vancouver Grizzlies, lasted only six seasons in Vancouver. But there was that energy, you know, and I connect that to some brilliant people I knew at the time through being a uh, bench warmer for Ernest Town. And that energy was looking for a place to happen, to borrow the title of a song by Kingston's own The Tragically Hip. Now, if it seems like a stretch to connect the Raptors with the late, great Gord Downey, uh, keep in mind, one of Gord's last public appearances was at a Raptors playoff game in 2017, where, you know, he and, you know, Drake gave him some dap. It was, you know, a great moment. You know, every, and now I think every sports media personality in Canada wrote about the hips relationship to hockey at some point. You know, it's an easy column, but for me, I always have that memory burn of Gord Downey sitting courtside at a Raptors game. You know, it is jeans jean jacket and signature hat as my fellow buddy from bath joey horrocks once put it no one ever rocked the canadian tuxedo like gord did and i imagine gord just was absorbing the game in way artists appreciate other artists who work in another medium or form and you know if you're privileged enough to sit at courtside at an nba or wnba game you know those leagues produce the world's premier athletic show you know, you, you have to be up close to really get a sense of their skill and quickness that is, you know, backed up by that 99th percentile height and strength. So, 1995, you know, a million miles away from the NBA, obviously. <laughs> uh, that was when Rob Smart transferred to Ernesttown. You know, Rob would go on to become an all-Canadian guard in, with the Carlton Ravens playing for his uncle, the legendary Dave Smart. Rob's now a prof in the business school at Carleton and a longtime assistant coach, you know, first with Dave, now alongside Taffy Charles. Now, I think people know about Carleton's dominance of university basketball, 15 men's titles in the last 18 years. The women's team's also won one too. Rob's actually the only person who won a title as a player, assistant coach, and head coach because he filled in one season when his uncle was on a sabbatical. Now, I also have to build in the lay of the land in Kingston High School sports around that time. Now, you think, oh, you, Ernestown got this big-time transfer, so you must have been, like, already, you know, a jock school. No, the fact that I could be on the basketball and hockey teams is proof otherwise. Ernestown wasn't like that. You know, if you wanted to look for a school like that, it was probably the three West End schools around where Neil grew up. You know, Frontenac, Bay Ridge, Holy Cross. I still hate Holy Cross. Anyway, a quick snapshot from 2009. Frontenac grad Stu Turnbull was the most valuable player at the Canadian University Men's Basketball Final Eight after helping Carlton win another championship. The Memorial Cup MVP was future NHL star Taylor Hall, who attended Frontenac while he was playing youth hockey in Kingston before he went on to the major junior Windsor Spitfires and greater stardom. On the final weekend of the 09 Canadian football season, our alma mater, Queen's University, won the Vanier Cup. And a Bay Ridge grad, Scott Valberg, caught two touchdown passes. And a Holy Cross grad, Devin Sheehan, caught Queen's other touchdown pass. The next day, Rob Bagg, Frontenac, and Queen's grad played wide receiver for Saskatchewan in the Grey Cup. And that 9 Carlton team actually had two Frontenac Falcons in their starting five, the other being Rob Saunders, who was their defensive stopper. 
And their star forward was Aaron Dornicamp, the last in the line of Dave Smart's seven nephews and nieces who went from Ernestown to play higher-level basketball. Uh, speaking of Aaron, by the way, and this is proof that all Canadians know each other, he wrote a testimonial for Carl English's memoir, Chasing a Dream, which Neil has mentioned in our both our Jeff Perlman and Brian Burke episodes. Small world, eh? <laughs> so at Ernestown, you know, at that time, you know, the smarts showed me that basketball could be a first-choice sport for a Canadian. Like this, you know, up, up until then was just something, you, you know, you played for fun. You never it connected yourself with, you know, the, the top levels of the sport. Or, and now, as dedicated uh, ravenologists know, when Carlton adds one member of family, it tends to add all of them. You know, pre- their press kits should include family trees along with the roster and the stats. You know, recent stars like Phil and Tommy Scrub are, you know, a perfect example. So at that point, you know, Rob comes into play for us. Dave was in his, in late, you know, in his 20s, a, a year removed from being an all-conference guard at Queen's. As people know, Dave had gone and coached a few, a few years before he, you know, went and dominated university basketball. So we had Robbie as our, our point guard. His uh, younger brother and fellow future Ravens star, Michael Smart, was the point guard of our, our junior boys team. Most of the core players on Ernestown's girls' varsity, including Dave's niece, uh, future Dr. Amy Dornicamp, uh, she's a veterinarian now, uh, you know, played in his uh, Lennox and Addington Guardsman Club program, which eventually transferred up to Ottawa. And so that year, Dave was around Ernestown helping, you know, coach hoops at this small school. You know, he didn't impose himself. You know, we had a good coach for the senior varsity teams, uh, you know, Tom Turnbull, Stu's dad. Uh, Tom's daughter, Taryn Turnbull, went on to play D1 in the States and professionally overseas. She was actually in the same grade as Neil at Frontenac. Again, because all Canadians know each other. Basketball is now all, you know, a pace and space, you know, three-pointers and uh, layups emphasizing environment. It was a different game in the 90s, but Dave's Carlton teams, I can tell you, they were playing like that 10, 15 years ago before it came into vogue in the pros and NCAA D1. And actually, the first time I heard about what's now called positionalist basketball, where any of the five players can lead the offense, was from the girls that Dave coached with the guardsmen. So you could tell at that time it was just a matter of when Dave and, you know, basically the whole smart family (laughs) would take their talents to a Canadian university. You know, Dave has that maximum Canada view of, you know, making it big, making something bigger, Uh, you know, hat tip to the writer Doug Saunders. But Canadian University's sports model kind of originated from a, I guess, a minimum Canada mindset. You know, just just try to keep the lights on, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, based on what Neil and I remember of Queens, you know, I don't think, you know, Dave would have fit there as a coach, you know, with the ambition he had. Our old school was, well, old school. But Carlton could use could have used a rallying point back in the 90s. It's in Ottawa you know, our nation's capital, you know, in politics, they have that phrase, change the channel. Well, late 90s, Carleton University needed to change the channel on all the Carleton, where the K stands for quality jokes. You know, they were beefing up the basketball program while cutting football, which people thought was going to, you know, set the university back 20 years. Uh, You know, yeah, how did that work out? So it was a great place for a disruptor such as Dave, who had a vision to create a uniquely Canadian basketball juggernaut that really hadn't been seen other than Ken Shields uh, University of Victoria teams in the 80s. You know, now two decades later, across, you know, the university sports landscape, obviously it's on pause now because of the pandemic, but, you know, we have a handful of D1 quality teams and it's 
done in a player development driven setting you know not one dictated by tv deals players get that extra season to play there's no like crazy restrictions on practice time they can be together 11 months a year if they want but before all that the harmonic convergence that kind of happened at Ernesttown. you know we had you know we sort of rob sort of slid in as the star with this uh you know ragtag team that we had uh you know so you know schools like you know bay ridge they would have these like nice warm-up suits with names on their shooting shirts the tearaway pants with their jersey number on the leg you know what our warm-ups were neil i do not no yeah we had these gray cotton t-shirts that said Ernesttown basketball we can play because we assume people just saw us walking in the gym it was like you know who are these guys and instead of you know last names on the back we had you know silly nicknames like bricklayer rainbow wigs madman rooster of course rob smart shirt just said smart you know rob's a fun guy but you know we could not pull you know a, him down to our level you know you know you know scoff at us you know take us lightly we'll beat you or at least we'll get your respect trying so i guess my earnesttownness and raptorness is both sort of inferiority and superiority complex you know at the same time now i realize now you know that i'm a little older that neil and his homies at frontenac and the kids at the other schools they probably didn't look down at us we put the chip on our shoulders but we had to get respect in basketball since Ernesttown did not have football you know the one chirp we often heard was you have a horse instead of a football team it was part of local lore that Ernesttown had spent money meant for starting a football team on this statue of a horse that was erected in front of the school back in the 1960s. Uh, you know, in my parents' day, the horse was an easy toilet papering target for Halloween vandals. My dad was actually part of like the Ernesttown horse patrol like one year. Like they would, you know, basically gather around, guard the horse from vandals, uh, you know, fortified with uh, liquid courage through, you know, stubbies of Labatt 50. So that's, you know, part of how I became, you know, the guy who always goes for the underdog. And the Raptors, in their early days, they fit in with that. They dared to be different. And they were an expansion team, too. You know, let the other teams wear the classic understated uniforms like, you know, the Lakers purple and gold. We're putting the dinosaur right on the jerseys. They didn't care if someone laughed at it because that meant that person wasn't in on the bit. But maybe they would get in on it once they saw the kids liked it. And Doug points this out in the book, the NBA owners really put the screws to Toronto and Vancouver by saying they couldn't draft a number one overall for three years and they could not spend to the salary cap. It was an overreaction, you know, to the Orlando Magic winning the Shaquille O'Neal lottery in 1992 and then winning the lottery again the following year. So that contributed to the us against the world mentality. Now, I got to mention the other cannot miss kid who wore Eagle Green Sun. Adnan Verk was in my grade at Ernestown. He was a basketball teammate there too. And for my money today, Adnan is the best Canadian sports host going. He just happens to work in the United States. You know, Adnan is on Zone, MLB Network, NHL Network, Yahoo Sports Canada. You know, he hosts an NFL podcast, the GM Shuffle. He has a Cinephile podcast. He was the first Muslim anchor at ESPN, which has, you know, been very important for helping foster diversity and inclusion. So, you know, give Adnan all the agency in his well-earned success. Just know that people who knew him at, you know, 15 or 16, 17 years old, you know, we expected it because he hustled. He worked on his dream of, you know, being a TV sports anchor. And he bet big on himself, moved to Toronto at 18 to start getting reps. With him, I always associate, I sometimes associate that with like how you see the YouTube video of 13-year-old Seth Rogen doing stand-up comedy. 
you know, he doesn't look like a kid quoting comedy routines or, you know, trying to be someone else. He already is the Seth Rogen we know now, you know, so it goes with the greats. So like Dave and Rob Smart, you know, Adnan was a young man with a plan. And, you know, and on the basketball team, his character shone by, you know, practicing and playing hard when he subbed into games, and that helped our chemistry. It contributed to us achieving our goal of a championship season in 96. Party at the Moon Tower. <laughs> yeah, all right, all right, all right. Uh, so those are the humble origin stories that tie in with my... Uh, you know, Raptors devotion, uh, you know, all these people who happen to be in the same corner of the world who were looking for a place to happen and getting defensive stops along the way. The Raptors were outsiders. I felt like an outsider. They became, you know, the NBA's lone Canadian team. You always felt like they're ignored by the American media. You know, you, you see those memes about, you know, compare basketball and hockey players' toughness, at least like my sport. Uh, you know, it's, so the Raptors and the Raptors were down more than up from like 1995 to about 2013 outside of the Vince Carter years. And that time always kind of felt like an illusion, you know, to someone who had, you know, rooted for the Chicago Bulls before the Raptors came along. You know, you look at the, uh, you know, the great stars of the last 30 years and how many times they made the NBA all defensive team. Kobe Bryant, who's, you know, I guess Vince Carter's contemporary. They're about the same age. Just Kobe got in the league earlier because he came straight from high school. Kobe Bryant was 12 time all-NBA defensive team. Michael Jordan, nine times all-defensive team. LeBron James has been on the all-defensive team six times. Kawhi Leonard, six times in just eight full seasons. You know how many times Vince Carter was an all-defensive pick? Zero. You know, but, but you know, around, you know, 2013, 14, you know, the Raptors became a solid playoff team, but you always had this, like, sort of force pushing down, like, the, the yeah, but... You know, DeMar DeRozan has these limitations. Kyle Lowry has these limitations. You know, you would have these, they would have the solid regular seasons, but there were always the fears they were going to get trashed in the playoffs. And then there were the little Bronto memes. Most of them were actually pretty funny. But we Raptors fans knew all that. You know, who's more brutally honest about their team than a true fan? But still, we hoped against hope. 2018. So Kawhi Leonard joins a team of, you know, full of players who all overcame something. Now, if your favorite team is good and lucky enough to approach their sports summit, you just know. You get in a zone. And that doesn't happen too often unless you, I guess, cheer for teams from Boston. Uh, it's rare for me, I know. You know, Nate Sager sounds like naysayer for a reason, fam. Well, you know, And when you have, like, depression like I do, I think despair and bargaining, you know, they bubble up a lot. You know, thankfully, you know, I have many friends, especially Neil, who help me up every time I take a charge and feel like I got called for a blocking foul. Hey, analogies. So May 12th, 2019, I watched Game 7 of the 76ers-Raptors playoff series on my laptop. Uh, Doug writes on page 211 of We the North, nobody played particularly well. And that kind of contributed to the tension for an observer. You, you know, you, you, maybe your team won't win, but you want them to walk off the court knowing they did everything they could. And that just didn't happen that day. It was, uh, And so the Raptors got the last shot to make a series-winning basket at the end of the fourth quarter. And when Kawhi Leonard's buzzer beater bounced off the rim the first time, I turned away from the screen thinking, oh, he missed. I guess we're going to overtime. I've got a brace for that. It was like a full two seconds from the first bounce off of the rim to the fateful fourth bounce. And I heard the crowd roar and thought, 
did the refs actually call a foul on the 76ers or something? And then the on-court celebration started. And on my end, I just remember I started laughing because it was like that play in the World Series the other night. With It was just so improbable. And then the laughter kind of like gave way to sobbing because it was just like this, you know, this release. Uh, you know, team of destiny is a cliche, but I relate this a little bit to say it was catharsis, a word I had to look up the first time I heard Gord Downey sing it on a song called Every Irrelevance. You know, this dam of doubt just burst, and well, you know, the rest. Uh, when the Raptors won the NBA title a month later, you know, I watched, I was at work, I watched it on a newsroom TV, and I went back to my desk since, you know, the happy tears were just flowing like champagne, and I felt a little, a little embarrassed, you know, because you're, you know, in a room full of all these, you know, newsroom veterans who you know don't react to much of anything but i took the raptors flag i had had in my workspace home and i you know i just walked around downtown hamilton where i live holding it up in front of passing cars and they'd lean on their horns you know that i think oh, i hope i've summed up you know the emotional equity i've built in the raptors and i probably should feel a little embarrassed by it <laughs> but that's where i'm coming from while we speak with doug smith uh you know, obviously the Raptors are this massive, you know, billion dollar corporate product. I can look at that objectively, but just know that they trapped in, tapped into something truly organic. And wherever, you know, I wind up, we had the spring of 2019 that, you know, brought me back to my inner hopeful 18 year old. And we will always have it, Neil. Thank you very much, Nate. And coming up after the break, Doug Smith and We the North. Well, we're back on Sports Lit, and we have Doug Smith, the Toronto Star Raptors reporter with us, and now he is obviously the author of We the North, which celebrates the first 25 years of the Toronto Raptors. And I have to ask you, Mr. Smith, um, do you think that the Raptors championship helped with the idea of selling this book? Because we know publishing is obviously a business, and generally they're putting out hockey books this time of year on whoever, the you know, the some it could be Rick Vive, it could be anyone. You don't normally see a lot of basketball books or books on TFC. So do you think in addition to, you know, it being the 25th anniversary, it's also the, the championship helped sell this? I, I think it absolutely, you know, I think it gave it a, a laser-like focus on the end of the book. You know, you, you go through the 25 years and you finish with the parade and the championship. But I do think there was a quarter-of-a-century tale to be told anyway. I don't know if we would have done it. I don't know whether – I hope it's successful, but I think it probably would have been a little bit less so if you didn't have the memory of 2019 in, in the fans' minds. You know, it certainly didn't hurt, that's for sure. Go ahead, Dave. Yeah, and what – I guess uh, – now I shudder to use this term – the process – of deciding to, you know, avoid just, I mean, there easily could have been a book just on 2019, but what was the process of deciding, you know, we're going to, we have to tell this whole story of everything that led up to 2019. Well, Nate, I think the interesting thing to me is that the journey is almost as much fun as the des- as getting to the destination. And I think if you, if you look at the evolution of not only the Raptors, but of basketball in Canada and in Toronto, it's the story of the of the trip that I think people want to know, and you know, there's been bits and pieces all along in the 25 years that have sort of led it to where it got to in 2019. That I think people might have might not known or might have forgotten, and I think a way to remind them is to sort of take them through. You know, obviously we didn't do year by year, we didn't do it entirely chronological because I think that gets a little bit 
repetitive and maybe a bit boring. But there were touchstone moments in those first 25 years that people need to remember or even learn about. Indeed. And yeah, that's what I really liked about it. Uh, at, at, you know, we had Jeff Perlman on la- last month and he talked about that's the thing you have to avoid is repetition of seasons. And as a reader, I felt like, you know, we were having a beer and you were telling me, well, this is what I think about, you know, this time in the Raptors history or this player. Uh, do, you, do, you have, do you have any sort of anxiety that, you know, how people will, re- how readers will receive that, like in case they were maybe primed for something else? Yeah, that, that was a, that was the anxiety. That was the stress is how to, how to structure it so that it's, you know, it's, it's part memoir, it's part history lesson, it's part sociology textbook. And trying to find that balance in those, those three things was a very difficult thing to do. Even when it came down to coming up with the 25 chapters, you know, obviously, like I said, we couldn't, we weren't going to do 25 years, but it also couldn't be 25 people. It had to be things that were a combination of issues development, uh, evolution, and obviously the people and events. You know, the championship is the thing that anchors the last the last chapter of the book. I, I was actually wondering, I just came to, it just came to my mind, but just when you were describing the Bitove slate kind of shotgun clause and how that, I mean, was that uh, a common thing in sports? I mean, I, it seemed to be, um, uh, I guess, I, I, I'm surprised, given that they were both partners, that that would be even, you know, in the, in the contract. To, to be quite honest with you, it seemed like a pretty, um, how do I say, kind of um, a dangerous thing in a sense, uh, where someone would want to avoid that that at all costs. But somehow it was part of this this uh, deal to get this franchise. Yeah, I don't think it, was, it certainly wasn't common in sports. I don't think, but I believe it was much more common in big business because you guys know when you start something as large as a sports team or any kind of major international global business there's probably going to be bumps and there might be disagreements. And I think something like a shotgun clause allows things to shake out. And that's exactly what happened with this. And it shook out in the right way. It was, it was tumultuous to say the least, but things like with all huge business operations, things you're going to go through bumps and things have to get to the smoothness and there's going to be shakeout. And that's what that was. I have to ask you, uh, I want to ask you about Kawhi right now, uh, to switch gears a bit. And um, I wanted to, to, was there a, I mean, you describe covering all of these guys and Lowry, you know, being a great guy, but he can be kind of prickly and DeMar being great with the press. But I mean, Kawhi not having said a lot, and you describe it in the book, he doesn't, he didn't have a lot to say perhaps in scrums. Was there a challenge in covering him? Because people wanted to know so much about him and he was giving so little. Yeah, there, there was a big challenge for all of us, and, and me particularly, is to draw, try to draw him out, draw information from him. You know, he answered our questions, but he answered them quickly and in very shortly. Not tersely, but shortly. And the, the good stories come when you can draw people into conversation and develop things from there. Something you might talk about with him on a Tuesday, you might not use until the following Thursday, but it's, it's a seed that's planted. Adam, I don't know that guarded is the right word that, that Kawhi is to describe Kawhi, but I think reticent and not at all, he didn't care. He didn't want to do it, and it wasn't important to him. And he answered, like I said, he answered our questions and fulfilled his obligations that way, but there was no extra. There was no conversational tone to it like there is with so many other players. 
You know, the the thing that I, I thought a lot about, especially when the championship run ended and they wanted to, everyone was wondering if he was going to stay or not, was this idea of, there's this saying, the man, the myth, and the legend. And I think the myth part, now obviously that's a cliche, but the myth is kind of like a Babe Ruth, someone we didn't see play and we've just been told about. And I thought that re- he really put the myth back into the man, myth, legend thing with people hanging on to everything he was doing. Uh, whether it was going to a Blue Jay game or Niagara Falls or the Cactus Club, or I even heard rumors that his, you know, his daughter was going to be enrolled in a private school here, so he must be staying. I mean, that whole part of of his, um, you know, his the end of his time here. Uh, do you kind of feel that lent lent to him being mythic per se? Yeah, mythic and mystique. There was there was something about him we didn't know. He never spoke. His his, his representation. His people didn't speak publicly at all during that whole. I guess four or four or five week period where you know it was touch and go whether he would come or whether he would stay or go, and yeah, I think it adds a little bit of mystery to him. And you know, the, just like it was mysterious when he got here, it was mysterious when he left. And I think that's in some ways pretty good. You know, I think it was. I don't know that this team would have evolved like it will in the next four years if he had stayed. I think it, I think it was, in some ways was really cool that he came. He led him to a championship as a as a key part of it, but then he went away, and I think that kind of is part of the mystique and the the mystery of Kawhi Leonard and his place in Toronto and Canadian sports history. Like, I don't know that's that's for the future to determine, I guess. But where does he fit? Is he do you retire his number or honor him some way for one year because the year ended up in a championship, or do you say, hey, thanks for this? We're glad you're here. We're glad you're part of it, but you're not really part of it. I don't know. That's that's going to be an interesting take, I think, in the next three or four years of this team. And you actually were the the, the reporter who asked him the uh, fun guy question, right? <laughs> yeah, very first one. Because again, we didn't know it. We didn't know much about him. I, you know, all of us, a lot of us have been around the NBA and seen him play in San Antonio and knew how good he was before the injury year, but no one knew anything about him. And I thought, okay, let's, let's give him a chance to explain what he is because he's meeting a whole bunch of people in a country for the first time. And I get, at that point we realized, okay, he's pretty guarded. He'll give us a little bit, but he's not going to give us an awful lot. I'm still a little bit ticked that I'm not getting residuals from the young <laughs> fun guy t-shirts, but that's another, that's another business point. <laughs> yeah. Is it, is it possible I, uh, that Ka- Kawhi Leonard is just like, a shy like i read a book once called goodbye to shy and it was just like they usually literally use it as a noun is that just what what he is i think he's just private yeah i don't know i don't know if shy is the right word but i think he's just private. he doesn't care he doesn't care that we don't know him he doesn't care doesn't care to let us know him and that's fine with me that's fine with him and and as long as he you know does what he needs to do professionally for his team and in his interactions with the media to, to take care of obligations the league, the league and the team have on him, he doesn't want to do the rest of it. And that's okay, as long as he's fair enough when we do need to talk to him. I mean, it's our challenge to try to change him, but we couldn't, and I don't think we would have if he had stayed for five more years. I think he would have gone the other way. He might have become more withdrawn with the constant every day, Kawhi, tell us something about you. He doesn't want to tell Sammy about it. And now, and of course, you've seen like you know every. You've probably talked to every Raptors player in, in the twenty in twenty five <laughs> years. Uh, there are an awful lot of them. Yeah, yeah. Guys come and go. Guys come and go. I, I. How do you hope? Uh, 
this sort of maybe humanizes some of the players that you know had all the demands put on them who had to be you know the face of the franchise whether it was Damon Stoudemire in the early years Vince Carter in the right at the turn of the millennium or, or DeMar DeRozan you know in recent years I think the one thing that's been consistent with this team is its best players have always been really good with the media Damon Vince Chris Bosh DeMar even Kyle Lowry after a bit of a rocky start because he didn't particularly want to be here and he wasn't particularly friendly, but now he's conversant. They're all, they've all, the one consistent thing is they've all been willing to talk. They might not say anything, but they'll talk pregame. They'll talk postgame. They'll talk after practice. They'll talk after shoot arounds. And as a reporter, that's basically all you can ask. Then it's up to you to get them to talk about something interesting, but they've all, all the best players on this team, I've always been willing to do that. And I've been around the NBA for a quarter of a century. That's that's pretty unique. We're kind of spoiled up here that we've been the media as a whole has been treated so well by the best players on the team. And I wanted to ask too, like how is being around the these uh you know, guys for twenty five years, how has it sort of maybe you know, have affected your worldview? I I think of an article you wrote last week where, you know, there was the you know, a story that I guess it was about a two-day story. Oh, the Raptors might play in Louisville, and and I think you wrote an article like, "There's no way these guys will accept playing in Louisville after you know the Breonna right. Taylor shooting." Yeah, that's that's that was just a non-starter, and I can't believe it had legs for even for 36 hours. And I was going to ignore it, but then it wouldn't go away. Um, but I, the players now, there's just so much more media. There's so many more people picking at them, asking them questions, wanting their time that they just don't want to do as do as much because, you know, they know, they know that if they say something to one guy and it becomes a story, then it's got to be answered again tomorrow by another guy. Maybe two days later, if it's the story has a lot of legs, they don't want to go through that. So they might talk, but they're not going to say anything outrageous generally because they don't want to be bothered by it. And they, if they have a message they want to get out now, this day and age, they have their own way to do it whether it's the Athletes' Tribune or their own websites or their own Instagram accounts or whatever it is, they're able now in this day and age to bypass the media, which I think is bad because it doesn't allow anybody to ask them the follow-up question that we need to ask pretty much every day. But I've had players tell me privately, I'm not going to tell you anything because if I tell you something, then tomorrow somebody asks me about it again and I don't want to deal with it again. So for this book, um, was there a lot of going back to call? Was there actually a, were you calling players, or was it you just you know based entirely on your memory and old articles? Did you do you have to revisit talking to some of the players from years past? I, I, I talked to a lot of players, talked to a lot of management people, a lot of coaches, a lot of people around the team, you know, back back of the house guys, uh, front office staff, sort of to confirm what I remembered, especially back in the '95 to 2005 era when it was pretty. Outside of the venture, it was pretty bleak. And I would, okay, this is what I think happened, but I have to check with someone to make sure my my memory was right. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It wasn't it wasn't calling to interview to get news, but it was calling to confirm what I thought I remembered. And basically, generally, I was pretty right. I got a pretty sharp memory, as it turns out. <laughs> but then that's <laughs> but that's the kind that's the kind of process that that it basically was was okay. This should be in the book, but I want to make sure with this guy that this guy that this happened this way and that was the that was the process of information gathering if you will 
Were you uh, were you approached by the publisher, or did you approach the publisher to to do this? Well, there were some mutual friends who sort of knew publishing people at Penguin Random House, and who knew me. Who thought, okay, maybe there's a book here. Let's get them together. And you know, the, the first time I met with Nick Garrison, who was, was the editor on the project with Alana McMullen, it was okay. How do how do we envision this? How do we see this? Like, well, what is it? And then it was a matter of me sitting down and getting 25 chapters and 25 themes to develop. And but it was it was just kind of put together by mutual friends of the publishing industry and basketball. So um, right now, I want to I want to switch again to to ask you a little bit about retiring numbers. And uh, I'm sure you've been asked about this before, uh, but I've always been of the mind that um, you know maybe the Raptors have a clean slate here, and they could almost create a criteria like the Baseball Hall of Fame has, where there's a set uh, guideline and and certain things that must be met to 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 have your number retired. Um, do you would you agree that that may be a good way to go? Because it seems to me, and I'm just speaking from the outside, that you know every team is different in how they pick who goes up there, and it can almost depend on who's in management at that time. Yeah, I can't. What relationships are like? You, you got a guy who left on bad terms. You want to honor him, even though he did great things for the franchise. Yeah, my, my point has always been: first of all, you cannot retire the number of a player who's still active anywhere in the sport. Can't do it. Can't do it until they're retired. Uh, I just I firmly believe that. I'm not sure you can have like strict statistical guidelines, but I do think it's got to be hard. It's got to be special. I, I think people retire numbers and honor players far too easily. Halls of Fame let people in way too easily. It's got to be the absolute pinnacle. And it, I think it, it's more than just what they do on the court. It's what they do for the franchise, for the city, for the game. I think today, the only player in Raptor history you could possibly consider would be Vince, because Kyle's still active, DeMar's still active. Maybe Damon would be, and then Damon Stoudemire would be on that list. But, you know, he was only here three years, and he didn't win an awful lot. So I, I this franchise has been so weird, and it's had such, all the success has been, all the real success has been the last six years, that there's a recency bias there that I think is wrong. You have to look at a far bigger picture when you're giving somebody what is the ultimate honor. I'm not even sure it's retiring a number. Maybe it's a statue. I don't think retiring a number to the rafters of an arena where less than 1% of your fans will ever be is the best way to honor a guy. Make it outside. Everybody can walk by and see it. If it's in the arena, you guys you guys know. Mm-hmm. 99% of Raptor fans from around Canada never will be in the Scotiabank Arena for one reason or the other but they might all be around Toronto. And I think there's a way to let them be involved in the process, in, in the honoring and see it as opposed to just hanging a banner with the number seven or the number 15 on it. Yeah. Yeah. Nail on the head. Uh, and that sort of brings us to, uh, you know, Vince Carter, half man, half amazing. Uh, the book really, you know, forced me to sort of confront, you know, some of the feelings I had about, you know, the, the way he left. Yeah. Uh, but what was the true legacy of of the Vince Carter years with the Raptors, I guess, 1999 to 2004. Well, I don't think it's it's as ultimate as there might not be Raptors if there wasn't Vince Carter, but it's not that far off. He gave gave the team a legitimacy it never had because he became this global phenomenon. That 2001 dunk contest, the 2000 dunk over Frederick Weiss in the Olympics, 
that wasn't just that was the Toronto Raptor doing it. And it might have been the first time anybody outside of Toronto or Canada had paid attention to the Toronto Raptors. And I think that will be his there are that will be his legacy that and the number of kids who are now playing basketball because he was here. And you guys know in the city of Toronto the game has taken off exponentially in the last twenty years. And I think it's because there were a lot of seven-year-olds watching Vince Carter in 2000 who are now 27 years old still playing the game. And I don't think you can diminish that impact on not just the Raptors, but but on the whole basketball in Canada process. And I think that needs to be thought of as probably his first legacy is what he did for the game in the country. What I'd like to see... uh and I find this is kind of included in a lot of articles about him and, and when people talk about him, especially south of the border, is that, you know, there was nobody knew anything about basketball here and I, I before he came. And I that's the part that really sticks with me because, I mean, you know, me, me and Nate are old enough to, to remember the Jordan years and that, you know, all of our friends watching basketball. And I actually uh, remember reading the part in the book about you talking about, uh, I think it was during the FIBAs where the, the guys explaining how how long the basketball court is or something like that. And um, for me, it was going to the draft and, and having them, I was at the 1995 draft, I believe in Toronto, and they're explaining yep. double dribble. So yeah, I mean, there, there's, there's always this extra stuff thrown in with, with Vince. And I don't know necessarily if it has anything to do with him per se, but that there was, you know, this was a, you know, there was tumbleweed going down Young Street. There was, there was no basketball culture here. And to some degree, I, I disagree with that. So yeah, that, 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 yeah, that, that's a false narrative. There was a, um, there was a, a gr- there were there were basketball fans in Toronto before 1995. A lot of them. There weren't as many, obviously, as there were once the Raptors got here. But yeah, that, that's a false narrative that we were this sporting backwater who never didn't know anything about basketball because that's that's simply not true. It was enhanced greatly by first the Raptors, then Damon, and then Vince. But yeah, we weren't we weren't like Hicks who just wore hockey pads to school. <laughs> that's 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 what you might hear. You might hear that in places today, but obviously it's not true, and it wasn't true back then. Yeah, something I think all three of us have in common is we all kind of grew up in in uh, Ontario border towns. Like, what can you sort of tell our audience about? The, you know, there was that you know grassroots uh, love for basketball in pockets uh, across Canada long before 1995. I, I grew up in Niagara Falls, Ontario. I went to I went to probably ten times as many Buffalo Braves games as I did Toronto Maple Leaf games. That's that's what that's what we did. It was like half an hour across the border. You get a ticket, and I loved it. It was great. Ernie DiGregorio, Bob McAdoo, Jack Ramsey was the coach. Tom McMillan. It was a Randy Smith was the most one of the more underrated players in the NBA, maybe ever. But yeah, Windsor was another great hot spot. Halifax was a big basketball city. There were there were pockets of basketball in Canada before, long before '95 that were finally getting served with a team two teams with Vancouver until they left that they could call their own. So Doug, I want to, I want to get you now um, to uh, read a portion of the book uh, for us. Um, and this, this is the portion, this is basically where you were when the shot, and, and by the way, I'll set this up by, you have a chapter called, you know, the two shots basically. And it was the, you know, what happened with Vince and then what happened with Kawhi, you know, both against the 76ers, both in game seven, both right at the end of the game and buzzer beaters and two divergent 
storylines uh, essentially on the same play per se. So could you go ahead and read that if you have the book in front of you? Absolutely, yeah, I have it right here. Right, here we go. All right, the intensity in the building that day was something I've never felt before in all the years covering the team. Everyone knew the stakes. The Leonard trade was made for moments like this. A second-round exit would have been a colossal disappointment. It was, once again, the most important game in franchise history. Sitting on media row, I once again had a perfect angle to watch the shot. When I left his hand, the buzzer sounded, and the balance of two teams' championship hopes hung on which way the ball would bounce. And no one could have, nobody could have predicted what came next. The ball hit the rim and bounced up. Everybody in the arena, along with everyone watching outside in Jurassic Park and across the country, held their collective breath. A second bounce on the rim, and suddenly it seemed like maybe, just maybe, this sucker had a chance. A third bounce. Holy shit. <laughs> on the fourth bounce, the ball seemed to rest gently on the basket, like a moment frozen in time. The first Game 7 series-clinching buzzer beater in NBA history. Pandemonium. I told him to bounce it three times on the rim. Nurse joked afterwards, not four. Nick Nurse, the coach. My immediate reaction? Disbelief. No one could have dreamt of this playing in their backyard growing up. A four-bounce shot to win a playoff series in a game seven? Unbelievable. My second thought? Man, it looked just like the shot Carter took 18 years earlier. The parallel of the two shots was incredible. I talked to Carter about it recently, and he agreed. It was amazing to see, Carter said. It was, you look at it, you just turn it over and flip it on the side. Here's what this would have looked like. That's basketball. Yeah, that's basketball. No better way to put it. The absolute beauty of sports. One shot goes in, one doesn't. One brought absolute joy, one brought absolute dejection. Sometimes you do everything to prepare for that moment. You spend hours, years honing your craft, working on every single shot, preparing for that moment when you can be the hero. But when the ball goes up, you're really at the whim of the basketball guards. People like debate, like to debate end-of-game play calls that are always open to second-guessing. And, of course, shots like Carter's and Leonard's in Game 7 will be replayed and talked about from now until eternity. A lot of times, whether it's a good play or not, just depends on whether the ball goes in the net when the buzzer sounds. I didn't see the photos of Leonard's shot until later that evening. You'd see it all on all the players' faces, on the Raptors and the Sixers. They were all in disbelief. They didn't know what to do. Nobody had ever seen anything like that before. And it was true. It was the first time a Game 7 ended on a buzzer beat. The pictures of Leonard Shot is going to go down as one of the best sports photos in Canadian sports history. It's not even close. It's not the same sport, but I think it's right up there with Paul Henderson's game-winning goal in the 1972 Summit Series. And probably even bigger than when Donovan, Donovan Bailey won the 100-meter Olympic gold medal at the 96 Summer Olympics in Atlanta. Just like Carter's shot, what Leonard did changed the trajectory of this franchise. Without it, they lost again in the second round, and the one-year experiment with Leonard would be considered a failure by a lot of people. I would still argue that it was a no-brainer trade for Mazzai Jerry, and if they went for it and didn't get the ultimate prize, you couldn't blame them for going for it in the first place. You take your shot when you think you have a chance. Without the shot, though, there would be no championship, no parade, no legacies for all the players on the Raptors who will forever be celebrated in the city. It would have changed the summer, too. Kyle Lowry probably would have returned. He definitely would not have returned with signing extension. It's likely the jury would have explored trade options for Serge Ibaka and Marcus All and hastened the entire process of turning the page on this roster. Instead, the Raptors are defending champions. 
that's how fragile sports is. Two shots, two different outcomes. There you go. Thank you, Doug. That was well read. My pleasure. <laughs> um, and well written. Um, I want to I, I want to ask you about Masai. So Kawhi's gone, and and it's a bit bit disappointing. But as you frame it, it's almost this amazing mythic story. He's you know he came, he did, he conquered, and now he's <laughs> gone. But Masai, Masai. I mean, if you're if you're a pessimistic Raptor fan or a doomsday type guy, and and you read, you Who know, are you talking about Neil? P- page one thirty two. <laughs> page 132 uh, in your book, and I I just, I'm going to read it to you. Um, When Ujiri does move on from the Raptors, they will miss his dynamic nature. There are a lot of of smart people in the front office, but no one will come close to having the charisma and ability to rally an entire city, an entire country, like Ujiri has done. He's been the face of the franchise for almost a decade now. When he's not here anymore, the next guy is going to have a really hard job. Until the, until then, in Maasai, we trust. I started thinking about Kawhi on the on the stage at Nathan Phillips Square, and you kind of got the feel feeling he was leaving. So I guess what I'm getting to as as an insider, Mr. Smith, are you are you letting us know something here? Do you is Maasai uh, is he going to go? Well, I, I've said for as long as this has become an issue for the last two I guess two and a half years that this is certainly not his last job. He's early 50s. He's not done his things in life in Toronto. He's going to find some other challenge. I don't think it's going to be running a basketball team because there's a lot of been there, done that with him in that regard. But I think he has a bigger role to play in the world somehow. I I don't know what that is, whether it's a foundation, whether it's his Giants of Africa, whether it's running a league or – advancing the social justice causes or anti-racism or indigenous rights. I honestly don't know. Maybe it has to do with Africa. But he's not finished his life. This is not going to be his last job. I don't know when he's going to go. Maybe it's not for five years. Maybe no challenge presents itself to him until then. But at some point, something's going to come up where he's going to say, yeah, that's what I want to do next. And he's going to go do it. And it's going to be too bad. And it's going to be sad for the city sad for the franchise, but I don't think anybody can blame him for seeing something bigger on the horizon that he wants to go do because he's reached the pinnacle of this sport. And I think there are other things out, maybe even outside of basketball entirely that will be intriguing when they present themselves, but they're not, they're not there yet. I fully expect he will sign another contract here. I mean, it might be open-ended. I might have a lot of outs, but I don't, I certainly don't think this is his last job. Yeah. What What about maybe making Masai Ujiri the first uh, Raptor statue outside the arena? <laughs> yeah. I, I think there's absolutely a case for that to be made because what he did when he came back in 2013, 2014 was instill in this whole team and the city and its fan base a sense of, yeah, we're good enough. We're, we're not, we don't need to hear this crap about no one wants to come to Toronto. We're going to make it so people want to come to Toronto. If they don't want to come to Toronto, screw them. We're going to win without them. Oh, I think he's absolutely would be on a very short list once he's done with the Raptors as the guy that you want to honor in some like historic way. What what I do hope is Majuri really seems to get the bigger picture on everything, and I hope if he does plan on leaving, he he does have the right people here to you know, to follow what he's done, because I mean, that would be devastating. I think if he, yeah, no, I I think, I think he does. I think he knows that. I think he needs to get 
as he said when he when they gave Nick Nurse a contract extension, he's going to take care of his people, and his people are good. Bobby Webster is as as highly regarded a general manager as there is in the NBA, and Mazzai will take care of him as a sort of succession plan. Same with Dan Tolson, the director of scouting. Teresa Rash, who's director of basketball operations, I believe her title is. These kind of people are vital to Mazzai and will be vital to the next wave of the Raptors, and he's going to take care of them. Uh, that's the thing he's going to do. Uh, and now just uh, making a 90-degree turn, uh, you know, to the to the bad old days. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. The, the book has a really tight narrative, which which I I like. But you know, what kinds of stories about say I don't know Keon Clark or Matt Bonner or, or a coach like Kevin O'Neill might have ended up on the cutting room floor, so to speak. There, there's a, there's a couple there's a couple that probably could have got in there, snuck in there somehow, but didn't. Um, Keon Clark, for instance, I don't know. At one time, for some reason, we were in a scrum one night. I think in New York, somewhere on the road. And someone asked him a question, and he looked right at me, and he goes, I'm not answering that question as long as he's here. And I asked him, like, what, why, what, what? He goes, you know what you did. And I said, no, I swear, Keon, I have no idea what I, what, you, what I did to obviously tick you off. He goes, no, not, we're not talking. And the, the conversation ended, or we all walked away, and I went to Jim Bombard, the PR guy at the time, and I said, Jim, like, check with Keon. What did I do? Came back to this, Keon says, you know. I go, dude, I have no clue what I did. And couple of weeks went by and pretty soon he was talking to us again and i had no idea still to this day no idea what kind of thing i'd done to him to make him so ticked off oliver miller i think this, this story is in the book at one time his first go around decided he didn't want to talk to the media for whatever reason oliver was a as bad a guy as i've ever covered but he did tell us you guys are on three weeks probation. I'm not talking for three weeks. And Charlie Lemex from Broadcast News at the time looked at us and said, we still get paid, right? <laughs> so those, those kind of things. There's a, a couple of those stories that Polly could have made it, but they, I didn't know where they fit. You know, you see the way the book's structured. I don't know where that Keon Clark story would have fit. That's the kind of thing. I was thinking about maybe um, uh, Charles Oakley uh, collecting his, yeah. uh, his debt. Uh, maybe I don't know if I, I I skipped over that part by accident, but yeah, that was one of the, the instances I thought of. Uh, didn't he collect a debt at a morning uh, shoot around? The morning shoot around of Game Seven against Philly, two thousand one. <laughs> Tyrone Hill owed him a lot of money. Paid him in a uh, gym bag full of cash, and we asked Oak, "That's settled, right?" Oak goes, "No interest. That's not settled." <laughs> That's the kind of thing was. But yeah, they're. There could have been an entire, you know, Charles Oakley could have been an entire two chapters in a book because he's such a fascinating character. But I think it would have taken away from the twenty-five year breadth of it and that kind yeah. of thing. Maybe there's a, maybe there's a, a Oak sequel. I don't know. Maybe there's some, maybe there's some next book on the weird guys around the Raptors and just do twenty-five people as opposed to twenty-five things. Yeah, you know, maybe do that. At, sorry, maybe go ahead. do that at thirty years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and it, the the other one I, I just I thought of too is you know how many times I've run into Matt Bonner in a short time here on the subway. You know, it's just it's like things like that. So um, great guy, Matt's a great guy. He's a great guy, Matt Bonner. Still is. Just I, I love him. Good, 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 good person. Um, you know, actually, since you're, I, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Vince Carter's last game in Toronto when he not as a not playing, but when he was on the bench, was a game where the T Wolves. Uh, and the Raptors played, and Kevin Garnett and Bonner got into it, 
uh, and I think that may have started the legend of Bonner. I'm not I'm not 100 percent sure, but uh, I see. Yeah, to... they, they they threw Matt out of the game for trying to fight Kevin O'Neill. Kevin Kevin Garnett was <laughs> classic moment. Bonner left like a champ, like a boxing champion, yeah. head above hands above his head. <laughs> You're chanting his name. I remember from the Sprite Zone. Oh yeah. Um, okay, so you you did sort of touch on this, but I'll ask you again uh, in a in a different way. And um, in writing about the first, uh, you know. 2.5 decades, we see how much growth and evolution there was to get to the point of where the Raptors are now, um, which is respectability. So uh, I guess maybe extrapolating on what we talked about Masai and what he may leave behind, what what's it going to take to maintain this going forward for the next 25 years? Well, obviously, the obviously on-court success is the, is the key because it, it brings attention and it brings talent and, and a lot of other things, but I do think the Raptors' next thing is to be a bit even more socially aware and socially responsible and where they fit into the greater Canadian and Toronto culture. <laughs> I think they've done a really good job along with the NBA so far of advancing the causes of social injustice against social injustice, fighting racism, systemic racism. I think that continues. That's the next plateau, the next, the next climb for them, and to do it more in a nationwide scale it's very hard and it's very time consuming it's not going to happen overnight obviously but i think that kind of social responsibility is the next thing that they do a little bit more you know obviously the basketball is, is the driver you have to have a good team and you have to be competitive and you have to have good players and, and good people on your squad but i think there's a way for the Raptors to become a even a bigger thing than just a basketball team and, and i think they I think they accept that responsibility and they're trying to figure out how to fulfill it. And and how what part of outreach uh, that outreach involves, you know, developing, you know, I guess maybe, you know, being part of developing other basketball properties. Uh, you know, you have Kia Nurse, obviously, as one of the narrators of the audio book. I saw her play with her, you know, Connecticut Huskies team in Toronto, you know, three years ago. And the arena at Ryerson was just packed with parents who brought their daughters to see UConn play. Uh you know, when when you, I guess what I'm getting around is when do you think MLSE's you know array of sports properties might include like a WNBA franchise, or they might do more things with like international basketball or even U sports basketball, something you've always championed. I think that, I think the uh, WNBA is coming. I think that they need to see the WNBA as a better, more stable business proposition. You know, WNBA is coming through some really rocky times. So less than a year ago, it didn't have a CBA. It had a new commissioner, Kathy Engelbert. It had a lot of, so none of its franchises are making any kind of money yet. But I think it's on the right track to becoming a solid business proposition. And that's when Maple Leaf Sports will jump in. I think they see the need for it. I think they see the 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 good it would do for the game for them. You know, it's another, you know, maybe one of the smaller arenas, you know, Rico or out here in Mississauga. Maybe like playing in a, in a lesser lesser-sized building than, than Scotiabank, obviously, but it also sends a message that they're developing the game at all kinds of other levels. I don't think they can do... I, I think they would love to be able to do something with U-Sports, but they can't because they can't let the American NBA teams do anything with NCAA teams. And they, that, that dynamic is there. Maybe there is some sort of academy process like the, like the great European soccer clubs have, where... There is there are Raptor academies across the country that are not affiliated with anything but the team, 
maybe that's a way that they can sort of advance them, advance their their role in the sport development. You know, all kinds of you know, all kinds of interesting things I think are are possible. It's just a matter of the money, the the wherewithal, and the the commitment to do them. And I think they're examining. I know they're examining a lot of different things, but I don't know what's going to happen when. Yeah, and I, I'm I'm already envisioning myself like going to maybe a early, early Sunday afternoon uh, Toronto WNBA game at Rico, and then you know just walk right over and, and watch Toronto FC maybe. But speaking of you know the one adjunct you know t- team they do have, how far ahead of on the you know player development side, how far ahead of the NBA curve were they with what they've done with uh, Raptors nine oh five, and 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 why has that been maybe slow to catch on in the WNBA or in the NBA? Pardon me. I, I think. They were in sort of the middle wave. There are a bunch of teams. Houston was one that started right off the bat with its own with its own franchise, close, physically close to Houston, so the guys could come back and forth easily every day. I think you're going to eventually going to see 30 NBA, 30 NBA teams with 30 G League affiliates who are in close proximity to their NBA team, so that guys can practice at 11 o'clock with the NBA team and play at 7 o'clock at night with the G League team. I think that's a huge thing that the Raptors did, and they. It took them a little bit longer than they wanted to. They needed to get you know, a commitment from the league, the commitment from the people of Mississauga to, to find a place to play, that kind of thing. Put it all together was a, was a process. It's you know it's losing money, not a lot of money, but it's losing money every year. But that's okay because it's just a developmental cost. And we've seen it with guys like Siakam, Fred Van Vliet, Norm Powell, Jalon Wright before he got traded, Chris Boucher. We've seen how important having those guys around the NBA team and then playing in the G League is. They get they become better players quicker. And I think eventually every NBA team is going to mirror that. But that's been a, a huge part of, of what turned it around for Toronto. You guys know Bruno Caboclo had as much skill as a lot of players I've ever seen, but they lost him because they had no place for him to play. They didn't have them. They didn't have the 905s. He had to go play in, I think, Erie. And maybe a year, a bit of time in Fort Wayne, Indiana, where they didn't care. They didn't give a rat's ass about Bruno Caboclo. He was a guy from Toronto. What did they care? If he, if the 905 had existed when he came in, I think it would have been an entirely different story with him. I think they made a mistake. They should have sent him to Europe where they could have got some control to a friendly team rather than let him basically waste a year and a half not being around. I mean, NBA teams don't practice an awful lot. He had language issues. I think the existence of the 905 would have made it a lot easier for him, and I think that's why you're seeing their young developmental players are are so much better, so much further ahead than so many teams in the NBA. A couple of last questions for you here, uh, Doug, and the the first is something I actually passed over by accident, uh, and now I want to get to. Um, so you write about tur- a turning point, and you go to the directly to Dwayne Casey. Um, and I wanted to ask you about other some other turning points. And, you know, a lot of people talk about Kobe's 81-point game and, you know, how great it was, and it was great. But that also affected the franchise in that Rob Babcock was fired very quickly after that. So was that was Kobe indirectly, uh, did he indirectly aid the Raptors uh, maybe riding the ship, per se? Uh, I'm not sure that one game did. I think the Raptors knew... The, the day of the Vince Carter trade sealed Rob Babcock's fate because the return was so bad that that was the point that not only did he lose support, you know, I don't think he had a lot of support from the players, and when he made that, he lost all 
But I think his bosses at that time went, oh, my goodness, <laughs> we got to get this fixed. And it took a little while, but they did. I think that was you know, obviously a uh, a bad hire. And I, I, I don't want to speak ill of the dead, and, and Rob's passed away. And I like Rob. Rob Bobcock was a genuinely nice man, hardworking, but he was not the leader of a sports franchise. And I think if you ask Richard Petty to this day, that's the one regret. That's the hire. And, okay, it set him back some time. Set him back a couple of years. No problem. But they, they finally figured out, okay, this isn't working. Let's get this fixed. Um, yeah, I think Casey was a huge turning point when he came here because he, he was consistent in treating the players well, treating them like men, sort of like family. And he built a foundation that allowed them to become this pound of rock all for one. You know, he, he, he and Kyle Lowry butted heads for a year and a half. They just didn't like each other. It didn't get along. But Dwayne was professional and personal and supportive and never publicly killing his players. And he won, he, he won him over. And they enjoyed, until 2019, their greatest success with Kyle Lowry. Because with Kyle Lowry and Dwayne Casey, when they got to the Eastern Conference Finals in 2015, I guess, 16, 17, whatever the year was, when Cleveland beat him in six games, Casey's unwavering professionalism and niceness allowed that to happen. Uh, and now I want to, I guess, finally ask you about the parade, which is a really interesting part of this uh, book because I, I really liked how you basically woke up and you wanted to go, and then you looked at the go trains passing by, and you said, "You know what? I'm just going to have this moment by myself and watch it at my local pub." Um, yeah, I, I, I stood on the platform at Aaron at uh, uh, Clarkson and watched four, four, four or five full trains go through, and I thought, no, there's no way. I'm not doing it. I'm not. I'm too old. I can't get near them. I don't care that much. I want to go. I'm going to enjoy this by myself, and I did. I sat at my local helicopter yeah, it, it for was... nine hours of the parade, but however long it took. Yeah, I, I, did the, I did the sort of the same thing. It's like, I'm going to go, and then I just thought, no, there, it's just going to be a crush of people, and then it was like 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and, you know, they still haven't even really got to the speeches. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I started off like basically eating my breakfast to the parade, eating my lunch to the parade, going to the gym, and the parade is still, and the thing's still going on. And anyway, Neil. No, I, I, I was going to say, I actually went because I lived downtown, and it was, uh, it was actually terrifying at one point. I, I mean, there was like, there was actually, it almost reminded me of, I don't know if you remember about that Liverpool Stadium disaster they oh, had. Yeah. 1989. Yeah. It, yeah. it was, there was yeah, people yeah, yeah. being hauled like up onto the concourse at, at Nathan Phillips Square because just to save them from getting crushed. But I mean, I don't, I didn't want to make this a negative ending. I, the reason I brought up the parade is because I mean, their, their, their estimates are high. I, I don't know the exact number of people, but there was a lot of people. And do you think that's, that that's a testament to the Raptors just being so inclusive from day one, because they had to be, I mean, to, to sell tickets, but just people, jumping on board with this. I mean, you always look at the Leafs as kind of a, a club you had to get into, you know, like your dad's banker had tickets for it, and you, you'd you be lucky to get to a game, right? And and whereas the Raptors, you could, as you wrote, you could get the tickets at Shoppers Drug Mart, and you could go and you could be part of something okay. from the from the start. So just having all those people out there on that day, was that, um, I mean, how did you view that when, when you looked at, you know, 25 years of history? It was, it was funny. It, you know, the one thing I, I thought of, and I've said this many, many times, is that that day the Raptors reminded me of Canada. If we looked at that crowd, it looked like Canada. It looked like my country, my city. I don't think you would have seen that with, with a hockey parade, 
And I think it's because the Raptors have been inclusive. They play a global sport. You know, 25 years ago when they came here, if there was a seven-year-old immigrant from Europe or the islands or Asia, he probably, he or she probably knew basketball. And they finally had a team they could grow up with. And if you looked at the people around Jurassic Park outside the arena during the games, the people at the parade, the people at the Jurassic Park throughout the country, they were more they were truly reflective of Canada. And that's a testament to the Raptors because they welcomed these people in as fans. So they needed them back in ninety five, but they, they nurtured them and they nurtured the game and they nurtured the, their their presence in their communities. And it's given them, I think, a huge advantage over every other professional sports team in the country because it reaches so many people of so many different looks, backgrounds ethnicities, ages, uh, uh, economic situations. And that's the thing they should probably be most most proud of. Well, we're really happy to have you to join us for this long today, uh, Doug. And I wanted to ask you uh, in closing, is there anything you wanted to add? I know there's talk of an audio book or maybe it's already been recorded. Um, and yeah, anything you want to add that maybe we didn't ask you? No, I think we, we covered a lot of stuff. This was great. I really appreciate it the whole depth of the uh, of the conversation. But yeah, the audio book is out the middle of November and it's uh Kia Nurse is, uh has done the forward by Vince Carter and Matt Devlin has done the, the narration of the body of the book. I'm really really, really looking forward to hearing that because that's those are two great Canadian basketball voices. And I really I really I really think that'll be good. Um no, I just hope people enjoy the book and they enjoy the book for what it is. It's a run through twenty five years. It's been a lot it's 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 a lot of memories and it's a lot of me and I kind of like that and I hope I hope the people who buy it enjoy it that way. Thanks for sharing that with us, Doug, and all the best with the book going forward. Yeah, thank you My so pleasure, much, guys. Thanks very much for having me on. I really appreciate it.